It is a genuine joy to be here with you today at Christ Church, uh, to worship with you and to share the Word of God uh, here in this place. Thank you, Jamie, for your kind introduction. Thank you, Brad, musicians, for leading us this morning. It's a privilege to stand here and to share the Word of God. If you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to be looking at that text uh, together uh, this morning in just a few minutes. It has been said that there are only two things that pierce the heart, beauty and affliction. The Apostle Paul describes an intense time of suffering and overwhelming affliction in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. It appears to be a time characterized by difficulties, doubt, and despair. I encourage you to hear the word of the Lord, verses 8 through 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, in our hearts we felt the sentence of death, but this happened that we might learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. This is the word of the Lord. It sounds like Paul, the old song, sometimes I'm up, sometimes I'm down, standing in the need of prayer. These passages in Second Corinthians are some of the most penetrating, some of the most personal, times some of the most painful words we ever hear from the Apostle Paul. He writes these letters coming out of an experience he describes in the province of Asia. We don't know all the details that were involved there, but the reality is that a time of struggle like this, a time of, of uh, difficulty, is a dramatic invitation for you and for me, for all of us, to wrestle with the deepest and most important questions of our hearts. And I hope that somehow this morning, in the midst of this series on faith, doubt, and everything in between, that we at least get to crack the door a little to some kind of reflection about what this means. I would ask that you follow along in verses 8 through 11. We're going to make three observations this morning, and then it'll be followed by three applications. And the first observation is the longest one. So uh, if you think that we're going to make all three of them the same length, you might think we'll be here for an hour and a half. But I promise uh, that will not be uh, the case. Verse 8, Paul describes this experience for us. And he says that he's, his hardships that he was going through were intense and difficult, bringing about a response of discouragement and doubt. We don't know everything that was going on, but over in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, Paul gives us a hint of what may have been happening. Beginning at verse 23, he said these words, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews 40 lashes minus one. 
Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, from bandits, from my own countrymen, from Gentiles in the city, in the country, at sea, from false brothers. I've labored and toiled. I've often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face daily the stresses, the pressure from my service with the churches. Paul's combined experiences cover just about everything in life. Spiritual, emotional, physical, mental challenges, pressure at every point. He says he is under great pressure. The apostle is weighted down beyond his ability to endure. He doubted if he could find a way to navigate through the challenges. It seemed as if he were in water that was too deep for him to swim. So the apostle Paul, who elsewhere says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, seems overcome by these difficulties, by the sheer weight of the pressure, so much so that he claimed we despaired even of life. So here in verse 8, you see the difficulties. What he says are hardships that we suffered. We see the doubt. He wondered if he could find a way to endure. And then the despair, despairing even of life. Frankly, these are very hard words to hear. We're not used to hearing the Apostle Paul describe these kind of things. It almost sounds foreign to us. But he was not the first great leader of the people of God to go through something like this. For if you go back to Moses in Numbers chapter 11, he's leading the people through the wilderness on the way to the promised land. And difficulty comes. The people will not respond. And Moses gets frustrated and he asks God if he could just die right there in the wilderness. Elijah countering the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18 and 19 on Mount Carmel. You perhaps know that story. And Elijah is declared the victor because God intervenes. And you would think that Elijah would go out and celebrate. Instead, he goes out and he sits under a tree and hopes that he might die from exhaustion. Jeremiah calling the people back to obedience. Calling the people from the diaspora back to God, back to his Land. Instead, they do not obey. They are disobedient. They are rebellious. Jeremiah, in his deep disappointment, says in Jeremiah chapter 20, Cursed be the day that I was born. Pictures of doubt, difficulty, despair among the people of God and among their leaders. In times like these, we often wonder, Where is God? Or at least we want to ask, What's God up to in all of this? Does God have a purpose in these? things? What's his providential pattern? Is there some grand design that all of these things are happening? What are we to learn? So the answers to these perplexing questions are often unclear. It seems to me that it's never wrong for us to ask that question, regardless of where we are in life, whatever our circumstances. And I'm sure across this room today, our circumstances are all quite different. They range from doubt to delight, from sadness to serendipitous joy, from quandary to surprise uh, to satisfaction, wherever you find yourself. So it might be that you are along that continuum 
You stop and you say, what is God teaching me in this particular moment? What was Paul to learn during this time of hardship? What was Moses to learn during that time of difficulty? What was Elijah to learn in that moment of exhaustion? What was Jeremiah to learn in that time of disappointment? What about you and what about me? What about us today? What is God teaching us? Perhaps we're going through a time of doubt. You can't quite figure out what's to come next. So perhaps you can relate to the story of John Wesley, great leader of 18th century Christianity, founder of Methodism. 1736, John Wesley left England to minister to the colony, to come to the New World, and he and his brother Charles, who was a great hymn writer, found themselves in the colony of Georgia. They wanted to do the will of God as they understood it, but they faced setback after setback, disappointment after disappointment. All the time spent in America could be characterized by difficulty and despair. In a time of failure in ministry, a failure in relationships, Wesley sailed back to England, described in his journal these words, I had doubts about myself, doubts about ministry, and doubts about the Christian faith. In that same journal, two years later, May 24, 1738, he's described an experience that he had when he went to the services at the St. Paul Cathedral. Some of you have been to that beautiful facility there in London. But he said, I left the service with ongoing doubt and discouragement. I was walking down the street, and in his words, I unwillingly turned into a prayer service at a Moravian congregation. There he said, I heard the words of Peter Bueller speaking on Martin Luther's commentary on the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans on a text based on the Old Testament prophet Habakkuk. From Habakkuk to Paul to Luther to the Moravian preacher, God touched the heart of John Wesley's life, and he said he felt his heart strangely warmed. He wrote in his journal that night, I felt at that time that I did trust in Christ. In Christ alone for salvation and assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from sin and death. I don't know what you think about the theory of six degrees of separation, that idea that says that we're all six people away from being able to touch almost anyone in the world. But I do believe there's six degrees of salvation here. Habakkuk to Paul, to Luther, to the Moravian preacher, to John Wesley, to you and me, and perhaps God will touch our lives today if we're struggling with doubt, moving from doubt to delight as he strangely warms our heart with his word. Or perhaps you're going through something that's so intense and so difficult, you're ready to push the pause button in life. I can assure you that's where I was about five years ago, February 2008. It was a very difficult time for us. 7.02 p.m. one night on the Union University campus, as Jamie mentioned, 200 mile per hour winds came and touched down right in the heart of our campus. In 45 seconds, $45 million of damage done to the campus. We took 53 students to the hospital that night. Nine seriously injured and had extended stays. But by God's grace, there was no loss of life. About seven hours after the tornado touched down on campus, there were five of us who were still on campus about two o'clock that following morning, walking around, surveying the damage, devastation everywhere you looked. It was like a war zone. We didn't know if we could 
continue, we thought we had lost the university entirely. We began to ask questions that didn't have answers. What would we do with our students? What about our campus? How would it be rebuilt? Is there a future? What does all this mean? I honestly didn't know what would happen even the next day. A prayer service was held, and we sang that song. Some of you know it. He gives and takes away. He gives and takes away. I tried to sing it, but I couldn't. I couldn't get the words to come out, just tears coming down my face. I cried out to God that he would bring renewal out of rubble, that he would bring direction out of destruction. And indeed, he did. And he did a marvelous work in the life of our students and our staff, our faculty, our administration, and most of all, in my life and my heart. Yes, the campus was rebuilt in almost 24 months, and renewal did come out of rubble. But more importantly, God brought renewal to our lives. And sometimes we're going through those kinds of difficulties. It is very, very hard. It is very hard to understand what God is doing. And in some of those moments, God seems quite distant. Hard to quite figure out what is it that he wants us to learn in the midst of that. Sometimes we hear God's voice ever so clearly in the rain, in the wind, in the earthquake. But other times his voice seems silent. A hush. Sometimes it was that way even in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. At his birth, the angels could sing so loudly the heavens were opened up, declaring that the birth of the Son of God had come. At his baptism, a dove descended, the heavens opened up, and a voice was heard, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. On a mountaintop experience we call the transfiguration a couple of years later peter james and john were there with jesus in a transfigurative way the prophets moses and elijah were there and again the heavens opened and a voice was heard this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased but on another hill outside of jerusalem shortly thereafter it was midnight at midday and the heavens were silent And Jesus cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in the midst of the silence of God, he was accomplishing your redemption and mine. Sometimes in the silence of God, he is doing more in your life and my life than at any other time. So what do we do during those moments? We believe what we sing. When darkness seems to hide his face, I'll rest on his unchanging grace. During those moments, it seems like a mystery. God, time's hard to understand. But in the midst of that, he brings happenstance and turns it into hope. He brings doubt, turns it into dependence. He takes despair and turns it into delight. The Apostle Paul describes that in verse 9. He says, all of this happened to me. Here's his response. All of this happened. These hardships, this overwhelming pressure, this despairing of life, all of this happened so that we might learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It's a lesson the Apostle Paul had to learn over and over again. And it's a lesson that you and I have to learn over and over again. The Old Testament prophet Ezekiel had some kind of experience like this. God asked him, Can these bones live? The prophet doesn't say no, for that would have been willful disobedience. 
But notice he doesn't say a flippant, quick, unthoughtful yes. What does, he, what does the prophet say? You alone know, Lord. Thou alone knowest. If God shows up, yes, these bones will live. And God showed up in the life of the Apostle Paul, and he learned afresh to rely on the God who raises the dead. God showed up on the Union University campus following that tornado, and indeed, he brought renewal out of rubble. God showed up in 1738 in the life of John Wesley, and he strangely warmed his heart in a way that started a fire that is touching the world continually ever since that moment. Yet, even when we're going through these times and we recognize that God has come to help us, we want to then turn and help others, but sometimes we're a little too zealous in that. We recently uh, invited a new faculty member to join our work at Trinity. We're very excited about what he has to offer and what he can bring. He has written an outstanding doctoral dissertation on one of the great uh, preachers of the 20th century named Gardner Taylor. Gardner Taylor was a bishop of Brooklyn, New York, long before anyone ever heard of the Brooklyn Tabernacle or the Brooklyn Tabernacle Choir. Gardner Taylor was holding forth in that great city. Lanice and I, my wife and I, served in Brooklyn back in the early 80s, and I once heard Gardner Taylor describe a story about a young minister who was trying to help a family in times of bereavement, and the minister told the family that everything was going to be okay, that everything was going to work out according to the will of God. Gardner Taylor saw what was happening, and he kind of stepped in, he intervened, and helped the family. Then he pulled the young minister aside, and he said, your theology is quite adequate, but you're lacking pastoral and personal sensitivity he said remember job's friends it wasn't that their theology was altogether wrong but job responded you worthless physicians why don't you just keep silent maybe they should have read ecclesiastes there's a time to speak a time to be silent job says to his friends you should have remained silent that would be the better part of wisdom There's a time to speak. There's a time to jump in. Alexander McLaren, the great British Christian leader of another generation, once commented in a similar way when he said, there are times when our humble doubt often grows into a verily, verily, but a hasty, overconfident verily, verily often dwindles to hesitating doubt. He said, let us not be in too great a hurry to make sure that we have the keys to the cabinet where God keeps his purposes. We're trying to interpret the circumstances of life, the seeming questionable ways of providence. He says, let us ask for God to give us wisdom. There's this thin line of faith that stretches between a confident arrogance on one side and a willful disbelief on the other. And that wire of faith is strong enough to withstand any challenge, any powerful wind, any chasm, any difficulty, any doubt, any time of despair. And Paul says that he found in that, and God came and he helped him in that moment. And out of that, he learned to renounce human resources and trust divine resources. And that's what God wants from you and from me today, to learn afresh, not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So that's his reflection in verse 10. He says that God has helped us in the past. He promised to help us in the future, and he will help us even now, right now in the present. Why? Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Paul says that he'll do that as you help us by your prayers. It's a fascinating comment. By the prayers of God's people, God comes and he works in the lives of others. Some of us are struggling right now. We're in different phases in life. But most all of us recognize that God wants us to pray for one another. But even then, we doubt the power of God. The reality is that we're all so influenced by the secularity of our day, we come to doubt God's provision. Modern men and women are so blinded by technology, our own sense of power and control, that we think of prayer as weak and useless. The reality, however, is this. Everyone, everyone, all of us, at the mercy of social, natural, political, economic, and physical challenges. The discovery that human omnipotence is in fact an illusion is the necessary precondition to the rediscovery of the power of God and the place of prayer in our lives. We all have to come to the discovery that human omnipotence is in fact an illusion. Then we can rediscover the place of prayer and God's power in our lives. When that happens, Paul says that there are three applications that he can make very quickly. First part of chapter 1. He says, when that happens, we can find God to be the God of all comfort, the one who provides grace, the one who brings renewal out of rubble, the one who strangely warms our heart. Because Paul was no deist. He was one who recognized God as active in the world. And he remarks that when we do so, we can do certain things. We can learn to identify with others, verse 4 in a new and fresh way. When we try to minister to others, we can be agents of grace in their life, and our words will not be abstract like the young minister who needed the kind correction from Gardner Taylor. Our words, our lives won't be empty like John Wesley when he came to Georgia before his heart had been strangely warmed. Instead, our hearts can identify with those who are struggling in difficulty and doubt and despair. And as you go through these experiences, you'll have new opportunities from God to identify with those who are going through similar things. Secondly, Paul says in verse 5, we can identify afresh with the struggles of Christ. Now, our struggles don't add anything to our salvation. What Jesus Christ did on the cross brought death its death. But sometimes we think of salvation only in theoretical terms, and we forget that Jesus Christ actually suffered to accomplish our salvation. He agonized for us. He really experienced the silence of God in order to take on our sin. He who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. As my friend Robert Smith likes to say, he has been to tomorrow only to return so that in the midst of our inexplicable circumstances, we hear him say, do not be afraid. All of this happens so that we will learn not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Our hope is confirmed, he says in verse 7, is the third point. Hope is what God gives us as a great gift to, for life, for living, to sustain us in the midst of difficulty. And our hope is confirmed. We're energized. We're encouraged to endure in the midst of the next round of challenges. We learn to say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. 
So again, we hear Paul. He says in verse 10, He has delivered us from such a deadly peril. He will deliver us, and on Him we have set our hope. So today, let us delight ourselves afresh in the good news that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. Let us today confess afresh our dependence on God, the one who raises the dead and who invites us not to rely on ourselves, but on Him, the one who brings life from dead. Let us pray that our hope will be confirmed, this hope that will sustain us in times of difficulty, times of doubt, and times of despair. From the words of the great catechism, we ask this question, what is our only hope and comfort in this life? That I will with body and soul, both in life and death, and not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. May this be our hope and our prayer today. And may God bring grace to you afresh, to bring renewal out of rubble, to confirm hope, and to help us all to come to the place where we learn afresh with the Apostle Paul, not to rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. May he do a good work of grace in your life today by, for his glory and for our good. Would you join me, please, as we pray together? Oh, God, even now as we gather around your table, we pray that we would hear your word afresh your spirit would speak to us and minister to us that we would be reminded of what you have done for us in Christ that he who knew no sin became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God and moreover you have raised him from the dead and now we have been given life afresh thank you for the hope that is ours in the resurrection and we pray that you would confirm that hope for us today in the midst of our difficulties, in the midst of our doubts. Deliver us, we pray, from despair. Turn our lives afresh to delight today in God, who has revealed himself to us in Jesus the Christ, whose name we pray. Amen.